Hey, thank you, everyone. You can be seated. Hey, can you believe this is November? November? Wow. Now, how many of you who are early risers, early risers, okay? How many of you feel like half the day's already gone? Okay? Can we just get that out there? Half the day's already gone? Okay. Yeah, an hour, an extra hour of sleep, right? Wow. That means I can do an extra hour of sermon, right? <laughs> wow, what did they put in the coffee? <laughs> wow, what did they put in the coffee? Wow. Okay. Hey, we're closing out the sermon series this uh, today on, on parables. And, and we've been talking about the stories that Jesus told. And we've seen, and hopefully, hopefully it's been a, 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 a great experience for you. Because... Um, the stories of Jesus are powerful. And we have to remember that when Jesus entered into this most religious culture possible, that there were some things that had become hardened in their hearts, some things that they had become cemented in the way that they understood God. And Jesus used these stories to kind of challenge them about some of the things that they had kind of gotten off base about when it came um, about God. And hopefully as you've gone through the parables too, you've kind of seen yourself a little bit in the stories of those that Jesus told. Now... You know, even in our modern age, you know, you, you talk about Hollywood, you talk about, you know, social anything. It's all about story. You know, story is just a powerful way to touch and align people over a principle, over an idea, over a theology, all those kinds of things. And Jesus was masterful in the way that he told stories. Now, the other thing we got to remember, too, that when Jesus told stories, they were occasional stories, Occasional stories. Um, and what I mean by that, it's not that Jesus just told them, you know, uh, at, at random. But occasions arose that prompted Jesus to tell the particular story. And we've seen that over the last number of weeks. You know, somebody said something that challenged, you know, something that, that, that Jesus was talking about. Or Jesus was sitting having dinner in, 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 the, in the place of the Pharisees. Or, or, you know, Jesus saw something that he had to kind of present the story in order to crystallize in people's minds what was going on. So these were occasional stories. That Jesus told. There was an occasion that arose that prompted Jesus to tell the story. Now, people ask me all the time, how do you, under, how do you understand uh, uh, the Bible? Or even understand the Bible? Let me give you a little kind of formula. Um, for those of you that want to kind of understand how to study the Bible and how to study parables. And, and the formula is this. Context plus content equals clarity. Context plus content equals clarity. You see, there's lots of times that we can pull out a story out of the Bible, and if we take it outside of the context, we can lose the original meaning of what Jesus intended when he told the story. And we've seen that in a number of occasions. We pull out verses out of the Bible all the time. Um, you know, um, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you. How many of you have that on the fridge? You know, do you know that that was a promise that was made to Israel? And we can't necessarily claim that 
purely for ourselves. We have to understand the context of that particular passage in order to claim that promise for ourselves. A little bit of that. So context plus content equals clarity. Now, the reason I want to stress that is because the story that we're going to close with today is a very harsh story that Jesus told. But the context of the story and why he told it is extremely important. This story, let me, let me build the context, then we'll get into the content, and then we'll bring it all together at the very end. The context of this particular story is Jesus, a week before, or just before, his crucifixion. You know the story of Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and everybody, you know, Hosanna to the, to, to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he was celebrated as a king coming in. And it was a great uh, kind of procession to bring Jesus into Jerusalem. And we know that a week later, Jesus was hanging from a cross. But after he shortly came in to the, to, um, the city of Jerusalem, um, there's the story of him cleansing the temple. And that happened shortly after Jesus entered Jerusalem. And he cleansed the temple. Now when we talk about cleansing the temple, that Jesus went in there and was so upset because it became a marketplace. It was a bazaar. And here's the place that Jesus said needed to be a house of prayer for the Lord. And you've turned it into a marketplace. And Jesus started upsetting the tables and absolutely stopped the circus that was going on in the, in the temple at the time. Now, how many of you realize, how many of you realize, when we talk about the temple, when we talk about the temple area, just how large this area was? Do you know that the western wall alone is four and a half football fields long? Do you know that the back wall is 10 to 16 stories high? In fact, in, 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 it's, it's, it's thought that um, the Holy of Holies, the ceiling in it was 60 feet high. This is not a small building or a small complex. In fact, scholars believe that the actual complex itself was about 35 acres of the temple area. So this is not a small Area That when Jesus cleansed the temple, when he stopped the circus, when he stopped the bazaar, it's like everything came to a halt. And this wasn't just some small corner. Him and his disciples, you know, um, you know took over, you know, a fairgrounds of activity. Now, you can imagine to stop something that was so prevalent in Jerusalem that it would have raised the ire of the religious leaders. So right after that, right after the cleansing of the temple, we have religious leaders and the crowd that assemble around Jesus and the religious leaders start challenging Jesus. And they say, what gave you the authority? What gave you the right? Who do you think you are to come into the temple area and do this and upset everything as we have it? And Jesus, you know, Jesus being Jesus said, okay, I'll answer your question as soon as you answer my question. I have a question back for you. And Jesus threw a question back at him. It said, John the Baptist, remember him? Did John the Baptist do what he did because it came from heaven? Or he did it on his own human authority? And the religious leaders knew right away that Jesus had kind of trapped them. Because if they answered, oh, he did it on his own, you know, his own desire. 
then the people who were listening to the religious leaders at the time would be really upset because John the Baptist was incredibly respected. He was known to be a prophet of God. And the people would be upset at the answer from the religious leaders. But the religious leaders knew that if they said, oh, his authority came from heaven, that Jesus would right away say to them, well, if his authority came from heaven, then why didn't you listen to John the Baptist? So they knew right away that they were in trouble. So they answered Jesus, guess what? We don't know. We're not going to answer it. And Jesus says, guess what? I'm not going to answer your question either. Okay? But, but, the occasion then suddenly became for a story. Jesus says, I'm not going to answer your question, but guess what? I'm going to tell a parable. I'm going to tell a story. And in that context, here's the content of what Jesus told. So we're in Luke 20 here now, and we're going to read slowly this parable. Um, Okay, we've jumped ahead here. Is there one frame before that? Okay. There isn't a frame before that, right? Okay. Um, I messed up. Sorry about that. Okay, let me read from Luke 9 onward. Okay. Now Jesus turned to the people. Remember, now Jesus decides to tell them a story. So Jesus says, now, he turned to the people again and he told them this story, starting in Luke 20, verse 9. And he starts the story this way. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and moved to another country to live for several years. Now we can take over. That's the first verse, okay? We just missed that first part of the verse. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. So you have a wealthy landowner who owns this property, leases it out to these other tenants, and goes away. Okay? The time of the grape harvest comes, he sends a servant to get what's owed him. In other words, the rent, whatever, okay? Um, So they beat him up and they sent him back empty-handed. That's what they do. So the owner, when that servant comes back, sent another servant. But they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. Okay, guy comes back empty-handed. The landowner sends a third man. But this time they wounded him and chased him away. Okay. So, the landowner has sent three servants. And if you read the text really carefully, you'll notice that, that there's a slight um, heightening of the, of, of the damage that is done to each one of these servants. It gets worse. There's an escalation of the violence. Now, if, the, if this was you, ask, what would you do in this particular circumstance? You sent three servants out, and it's getting worse And the three servants come back, and they come back empty-handed. What would you do at this point? Hold on to that thought. Here's the next verse. What will I do, the owner asked himself. I know I'll send my cherished son or my beloved son in some versions. Surely they will respect 
him. Now, we are going to get to the end of this parable. And some of you are going to say, boy, that's horrible the way this parable ended. Some of you are going to say, well, that's understandable. Um, Some of you are going to say, wow, that was really harsh. What you have to remember is in the ancient Near East, the ending isn't necessarily the most important part of the story. This verse right here is the most important part of the story. This is the central truth of the story. This is what you have to take away from the story. Here's a landowner who experienced whatever it is with the three servants are not coming back, has, has, has no reason to believe. What? That things are going to be different? And yet, here he is, sending his cherished son, expecting that things are going to be different. Here's a noble person. Here's an honorable person who is going to send the thing that he loves the most into a dangerous situation, hoping that the people, those people are going to recognize that he's sending the most valuable thing to them and that it's going to ignite in them a sense of honor, a sense of duty, a sense of shame for what they've already accomplished, that it will ignite in them a sense of doing the right thing That here's a landowner who is sending the thing he loves the most into a situation that is hoping that his son will be able to change. Now that's a very tough place to be. It's a very tough place to be. And here's the landowner, the one that has every right against these people. And yet he's demonstrated the most vulnerable moment of his life. Incredible vulnerability. Incredible vulnerability. And exposing the very thing he loves the most to these people. He is open. He's hoping that this act of humility, that this act of vulnerability, this act of, you know, demonstrating good faith and and good grace to these people is going to make them kind of jolt them back into the reality and say, you know what, what we've done is wrong and you're right. Who we are and what we've been doing isn't legal. Here's how the story continues. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? Jesus asked. What do you suppose? I tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. And everyone around said, how terrible that such a thing should ever happen. His listeners protested. Wow. That's a harsh end to the story, isn't it? Do you know in that culture, by the way, if land is not owned officially, if the landowner dies or something, didn't give the inheritance to somebody else uh, for the property, if you squatted on that land for three years, that land now becomes yours legally in that country. 
That's the way. That's why it's perfectly legitimate for them to say at this point in time, if we get rid of the heir, and when the father dies and he doesn't have any heirs, and we've been on this land this amount of time, this land becomes ours. So it's pure greed, pure sin, pure evil, at a time when the landowner is showing incredible vulnerability, humility, and all of that. Jesus then continues. He, you know, he's got his listeners where he wants them, right? What, what an awful, awful story. So here's how Jesus continues the story. Jesus looked at them and said, Then, then, what does the scripture mean? That the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. Jesus is now pulling out a psalm from the Old Testament that the religious leaders would have understood that this represents the messianic figure, that this represents the person who is going to come and bring the nation of Israel to a, to a place of a foundation, and that this person was going to be the cornerstone. Jesus is kind of pointing to himself in this particular story and saying to be very, very careful in a warning against rejecting the Messiah, a passage against rejecting Jesus. Now, I can't go any further than that because we're almost out of time, so I've got to go to the next, next verse, okay? The teachers of the religious law, the people, those religious leaders that had just challenged him a few minutes ago, and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately. Why? Because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they would not arrest Jesus because they were afraid of the people's reaction see one thing to be very careful about in this story is a very harsh ending but the but the thrust of the story is in the grace and the humility and the vulnerability of the landowner to send his most cherished possession into harm's way the second part of this story that you have to realize is that Jesus is directing this story to the religious leaders. The people still love Jesus. They recognize that Jesus is basically telling them, if you follow in the footsteps of these religious leaders, you too can likely be judged as they are being judged. That the Messiah is right in front of them. That the foundation of all of the nation of Israel and the promises that God had made to the people is standing right in front of them and they're rejecting me. And if you're not, if, if you're not careful and if you follow in the footsteps of the religious leaders, you too will be judged as they are going to be judged. Because the most gracious act of the Father has now been done. Grace has been, you know, through giving the law, all the other things of the Old Testament was an act of grace by God. But the greatest act of grace by God is to give His Son to that which is sinful, to that which is separated from Him, in order to bring reconciliation with the Father. That's 
the wonderful part of the story. Listen, um, there were two, there's two dimensions of being a pastor that I never anticipated. They never taught me in seminary. Um, I, I learned it on my own. It's, it's, it's kind of like the two dimensions of being, of being a pastor that, that kind of shocked me. Okay, number, number one is when you're a pastor, when you, when you do what I do, you are in a continual state of grieving. Okay, you're in a continual state of grieving because in ministry, you're always losing something. Okay, you're, all, you're watching losses all around you. You're watching people who pass on and you grieve that. You watch people who walk away from the church and you grieve that. You watch families who are, you know, falling apart and breaking apart, and you grieve that. So you're in your continual state of grieving, um, and, and you learn how to manage the grieving process because you're always losing something, okay? The second thing is rejection. You're always struggling with rejection. People are, are rejecting God and Christ in some way or another, that that that's an important component and here we have this story that's all about rejection that the greatest gift the greatest grace the greatest expression of god's love to the world especially to the religious leaders who should have known better are rejecting jesus are rejecting the messiah um, let me give you three quick points about how this becomes the stories in your life when it comes to the parables. Parables of Jesus communicate the following. As we close this up, I want to do this really quick. Number one, they reflect the reality of the grace that is operative in our lives. Okay? Um, my job, I, I, I love, I read a quote just recently from Eugene Peterson that I thought was really, really beautiful, and I think he's right on. He says, the pastor's job, my job, is not to solve people's problems or to make them happy. Listen, if you're looking at happiness from me, <laughs> whoa. There's a lot of scariness in that, right? Then, you know, yeah. Get up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night, right? Um, my job is not to help people, you know, solve people's problems or make them happy, but to help them see the grace operating in their lives. I love that. I love that. You know? That, and, that's, and that's why I say in the parable of that story, the context is the grace of the landowner, the vulnerability of the landowner. And of course, if you're going to reject the greatest gift that God is going to give you, what do you think, how do you think God's going to respond to that? Seriously. Seriously. You, 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 you know, and honestly, something, something not good is going to transpire from that. Okay? Number two. Um, and, and, and we've talked about this. Converge, parables converge two hori- horizons, the earthly one and the heavenly one. And remember we said, you know, when you read the parables, you're going to see a mirror of yourself in the parables. But you're also going to see a window into God. Okay? The mirror of yourself. Am I capable of being like the evil landowner? Could my greed, could my evil, could my, you know, desire to have these things in this life 
push me to a place where I would, you know, reject the grace of God and say, I don't need that. I don't need God, you know, giving the invitation of grace or whatever in in my life. And I would just outwardly reject it because I want something else for myself. Okay? Right? But it gives a window into God in the sense that God has grace operating in our lives all the time. There's a number of you who are struggling with some very real problems in your life. But how many of you have thought that, the, those, those, that God is still operating gracefully in your life? That God is always there. That God is like the, the, the father, the, the prodigal son, who is always looking for you to return. Always. Okay? Number three. They evoke an emotional response based on truth. Now, there's a lot of stories. There's a lot of stories. Hollywood tells a lot of stories, and the stories are good, and they evoke an emotional response. They're not necessarily true. Okay? Sorry. Okay? I love Lord of the Rings. Not necessarily true. Okay? I'm there. Dune Trilogy, let's talk about it all. Star Trek, you know, like, you know, let's like, like great stories, you know. Okay, I'm a sci-fi nut, okay? But all great stories, not necessarily true, okay? And that's, the, that's the dimension, that's the dimension that Jesus gave the stories. That they, you know, they provoked emotional response, but they were true. And they lit in us. A sense of life, a sense of purpose, a sense of mission, and a sense of a relationship with God based on truth. Amen? Okay. Join us next week as we start a series on prayer. Thank you for being a part of this series on the parables. I hope it's been a blessing to you. If you missed any of them, you can go back on our website and and listen to the ones that you missed. Um, It's been a real challenge. Let, Let me pray as we close the service out this week. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful stories that remind us that we all make choices, that we all see our lives in a particular way that challenges to live in a particular way. And yet, through these parables, through these stories that Jesus told, he really got to the heart of what many of us believe and how many of us operate in our lives. And thanks for the challenge that these amazing stories bring. And thank you that we can learn from the context some deeper truths related to the parables as they were related to the situation and the circumstances that Jesus found himself in. But many times, Lord, those occasions are occasions that we can relate to and we can see our own lives mirrored through the story. Thank you for this day that you have given us, your continual grace in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we would see that grace regardless of the circumstances, because, Lord, you are always there. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.